You're tuned in to the MTGG Cable Cast, 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 where they cover Magic, the Gathering Finance. All right? You don't know about it? You're tuned in right now and get ready to learn some shit. Buckle your seatbelts and light a blunt and get ready for the MTG Cable Cast, 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 starring Reptar and Thirsty, them onion head motherfuckers. All right, guys. Welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal Cast. This one's kind of interesting, I think. Yeah. So we're basically taking a look at what makes a healthy format from a gameplay perspective, from a financial perspective. What does it look like throughout the history of Magic, and what really makes some of the best formats from a finance perspective? Because you know, ban lists happen. People yes. don't play formats because they get stale. Whatever the case may be. So things can change. Uh, and obviously most people, when they get into magic, what you're supposed to do is you learn limited first back when competitive play happened, it was an EDH, but after limited, you got into standard. Yes. So I have two really good standard formats that I liked a lot. Yeah. One was the Lorwyn era standard where you had fairies, five color control and Kithkin. Mm -hmm. So this format is unique because it was not good from a gameplay perspective. It was really bad. Yeah, it was miserable. Uh, as someone who played Mono Fairies and loved every minute of it, that format was garbage. Uh, interesting side note about that format, Saito top-aided a legacy event in Japan with standard Kithkin. Anybody can do it. But the thing was, this set, this era was very financially healthy. Uh, we just had Planeswalkers for the first time first ever. Time? We just got them. Uh, you had a control deck that existed that somehow managed to add four of any color on turn four. And this because is, of the... for people who are wondering, the cruel control list. This is uh, yeah. Gabe Nassif's list yeah. from that Nationals or whatever. Uh, best top deck ever. Yeah. Just arranges his mana and then oh, got it. Cruel. But there were really only two viable archetypes, and it was fairies and five color control. Yep. Uh, Kithkin was there. Elves was there. They just didn't really matter. It, it wasn't even a rock, paper, scissors format. It was just rock, rock. And that was basically it. Uh, and the reason this was good financially was because in addition to having these planeswalkers out here, the aesthetic was good. The art was good. The tribes were good. People loved these cards. It was super evocative. It was. It was great. And people wanted them. Yeah. And they wanted to play with them. They wanted to collect them, whatever the case was. This was back in the day when you could show up for a 200-person PTQ. Like it was nothing. But the big thing was, again, it may have been financially healthy because you had staples that were four ofs and decks that were in the $20 to $30 range in a rare slot. Yes. Obviously, this is also before the advent of Mythic Rarity, which is a very important line to draw when talking about eras of formats. Because Mythic Rarity did change things financially. Mm -hmm. uh, but this was before that time, and it was very good. Yes. Decks were still around $500, but that was it. That was the deck. It, it wasn't a $2,000 behemoth or anything like that. You didn't have chase versions of cards outside of foils. You had Thoughtseize. You had Una's... Uh, Command. You had... Yeah, Cryptic, Scion of Una. Bitter Blossom. Bitter Blossom. Unmake was a card that people played. Uh, and the other standard format that I go to, and this is the one that I give everyone as an example of what makes a good standard, right, is RTR. So RTR standard was great because mm -hmm. we had a shit ton of mana fixing because of the Shocklands, shocklands. but we didn't have fetches. Not yet. So no. you s couldn't be super greedy. Oh, you know what you actually had too? Um, 
This was a call. Shox as a called shot in return to Rav came because Farseek was in the core set prior. That's also really big on this. Yep. And this. And the thing that was great about this was there were literally eight to nine viable tier one archetypes in this metagame. And it was great because that actually suppressed prices. Because there wasn't a concentration of two or three decks that you see in some of the later standard sets with Mythic Rares, which RTR had. The example I go to is Kaladesh, where Aetherworks Marvel was like 60% of the meta share. Yeah. So that stuff was really expensive. That wasn't the case with RTR. You had, you know, your Azorius control, you had your Jund list, your Gruul. There was a ton of stuff there that you could do. And I remember Supreme Verdict being like the chase card, or not Supreme Verdict, sorry, Sphinx's, Sphinx's Revelation Rev, yeah. being the chase card at $25. Mm-hmm. Deathrite was a $10 to $15 card because it was in two to three different decks, just because it was good. Yes. And that, to me, is what really looks like a healthy financial format. It's not that there's you know two to three archetypes and staples are concentrated. It's the gameplay is so good that it suppresses prices across the board because there's not a homogenization of what's viable. There's a bunch of different archetypes out there. Yeah. And, you know, this was the first time where we started seeing, you know, RTR into Innistrad. Obviously, we had Snapcaster Mage, Geist of St. Traft, all these things that just from a design perspective kind of signaled a shift in the way that Magic was going. But the format was really good because whereas during Lorwind you could get a, you know, tier one deck for 500, they were like $300 in RTR. And there were 10 of them. It was just a really good time because you have a lot of liquidity, mm-hmm. but you also have affordability. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's not like what happens a lot of times in Legacy where people talk about being priced out or EDH being pay to win because you've got to buy these expensive cards or whatever. It wasn't like that at all. It, it was literally, I'm going to give you 15 for your Cryptic and Lorwyn. I'm going to give you 15 to 17 for your Sphinx's Rev. I'll sell it tomorrow, if not an hour later, for $20 to $25 and be fine with that. And it was just this really cool time where you had basically, in some ways, and your recollection may be different, almost the advent of backpacking started then. And as a mass thing, it wasn't just something that Ogre did. It was people would go around because all of these cards were liquid. All of these cards had value. We started to see a homogenization of prices and locale and everything. It was really, really cool. And to me, and I'll talk about some other formats later, financially, that is the best standard has ever been. Ever. Not particularly close. It was insane. And and it was good because every pack you opened – had something playable in it that had value yeah. it was a banger it was great yeah. uh, the standard format that i i look at is uh more of an era it's from battle sorry cons to battle for zendikar i think for me as from a playability standpoint in terms of standard and financially this is one of the best to look at despite the fact that i probably actually enjoyed onslaught mirrored in standard a little bit more because there was a lot more involved uh, from play patterns in that era but this cons to battle for zendikar has very similar traits to the standard arms you're looking at in regards to the fact that every pack you opened was impactful. There was something, there was going to be something inside that you can make use of because there was so much to be doing. And it wasn't at that point just standard like Lorwyn. It played more into Commander like Return to Rav started to do because the format had just been supported by Watsi. And we started to see a shift in Innistrad, the block before Return to Rav, of more 
commander focused cards that were still playable in standard like crater of behemoth comes from this uh from that set for instance and in cons through battle we saw the same stuff you look at there's the fetch lands there's ugin the spirit dragon there's the the dragon lands yep that come from across uh across the block we had sidisi both versions uh, we had sarkon dragon speaker etc now the reason i picked this as an era is because it this format that we're talking about actually bookend one that i yeah. think was really bad in theros because devotion narrowed everything down so much it was basically mono blue mono black or the gruel monsters list whatever you want to call it with polychronos and Stormbreath dragon yep and so we're looking at another really vibrant format that lasted for a fairly long time but kind of necessitated a little a little bit of a cushion coming out of theros so the metagames were similar for the entire timeline from battle through sorry cons through battle but they were vibrant saw nuanced variation in lists from event to event there are meaningful best decks at each flagpole pro tour and each one of those pro tours saw a different meta the star city circuit was in full swing and it brought with it a showcase of talent that further altered local and larger metagames and showcased new and interesting strategies which kept the format continuously changing yep. and i have uh I'll, I'll put these in the show notes the links to pro tour battle for zendikar pro tour dragons of tarkir and pro tour origins where you can actually see the metagame from cons kind of move through to origins yep. i skipped fate forge because i was a modern pro tour so duh and pro tour kaladesh was rather like squirrely and kind of inbred as it contained theros and the devotion mechanic though we did see jeskai and abzandex start to loom large and those two will kind of continue on blue black control existed for a while until rotation but eventually fell out in favor of um Sidisi Whip, which was a Sultai control deck. And it was really good. It was really it good. It lacked a Siege Rhino. Yes. Uh, and there is a, a 100%. There was the mono red list that played Sarkon. <clears throat> there was a green red deck that, you could, uh, that played Surak, I believe, and made Wild yep. Slash a really good card. And yep. so there was just a lot to be doing in this format. Financially, this was a really easy to palette time and standard uh, because pressure was put in the correct place like you were saying planeswalkers had hype and cost a bunch and they yep. showed up and showed out as expected financially nothing was too extravagant or difficult to manage it was all kind of as expected ugin might have been the only real outlier here but that's because it made modern impact immediately and fell into tron yep. which is doing really well at the time but all of that changed when origins hit and with it came jace vrin's prodigy and so things kind of change here this card definitely did show up, and it definitely did show out, and its price was definitely reflective of that, uh, upwards of almost $100, like somewhere around 80 for a really long time. Yeah. And along with Jace Friends Prodigy came collateral pressure to, to the fetch lands and spells like Dig Through Time that took advantage of flush graveyards. The Battle for Zendiko, quote, Tango lands had an unnecessary price point because they were fetchable and ally card, yep. which further exacerbated the issue. And boy, was standard really expensive for a time. And we're talking like maybe six to seven hundred for any deck with Jace Friends Prodigy or Gideon Ally of Zendikar. Yeah. So for a while, you just kind of floated through on this really great standard <clears throat> where everything kind of cost a fair and moderate amount. Everything was super liquid, like you were talking about. We had um, 
I did mention Sidisi Whip that played uh, Whip of Erebus from Theros block before that, so the gods were still moving pretty quickly. People were cracking packs for fetch lands in all three sets, so those were extremely liquid. All the Planeswalkers from the set, again, highly liquid. Most of the rares in the high-impact Mythics, yep. Mythics, highly liquid. This is a very fun format to play and trade in, to backpack in. It was just a really good time overall. And the further we move through Battle for Zendikar set, we move into a more homogenized format where things get a lot more boring and standard becomes a little less palatable because of that we kind of settle on another like mono green meta for a while yep. with Gide focusing on Gideon ally of Zendikar as a premier card in the format, adding a Nissa, the three drop Nissa over time, and a bunch of vehicles alongside that. And it just kind of shrinks away the importance that was the the cons format overall so for me when i think back standard environments that i played that were really good to transact in that is one of them rtr was another i was doing a ton of backpacking for the same reason everything was super liquid from from innistrad block and rtr yep. people just came out to play events and binders were just easy to open and get into everybody was looking for everything it felt like and that was a super good standard environment as well yeah uh, I oh, good. oh I I loved that era because it was like you said it was an era of just solid standard for an extended period of time say what you will about Coco everybody knows my feelings on the card I don't know how many times I've picked it at this point uh, Siege Rhino was great it was just it was the last time I remember Wizards designing multiple sets in a row incredibly well yeah yeah, the only problem was Fate Reforged in the long run. A lot of people didn't like that set, but it has kind of grown over time. Uh, we were trying yeah. that summer at Anime Expo. We were selling our Fate Reforged boxes at cost because we didn't want to fly them home. But at that point, yeah, I believe we'd hit battle. Like something had happened in the Sander environment and it just soured. And that set was was the finan was financially the worst set to open. So people just kind yeah. of balked. But moving on we're going to take a look at modern next yeah and this this was kind of interesting to me uh it's it's more of an abstract thing so when the modern format was announced yep they just said hey this is what it is top yes. stand that was it that that was all they said well they came up with the, the extended band list is the modern band list so yeah yeah not to be pedantic here's stoneforge mystic jace mind sculptor gta that that was yeah. that was a little later but uh when it was fresh, before that first Pro Tour, before, uh, what was it, Blazing Shoal? Yes. Just destroyed Progenitus with Infect everything. That, that was disgusting. Before that happened, legitimately, playtesting that format with friends was the most fun I've ever had. Uh, 12 post from that time period. Mm -hmm. uh, it drew all the cards, it countered all the spells, it took all the turns. Because you had your 12 posts, you had ramp spells, you had Jace the Mind Sculptor, Spell Burst, the buyback counterspell from Time Spiral. Oh, yeah. And Emrakul. Uh, and then you had um, the Tribal Zoo, where you just had Tribal Flames and Zoo because you had Fetches and Shocks. Well, you had Shocks, not Fetches at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Deathrite was in the format, and Jund ran Deathrite and Noble Hierarch? What? Uh, Lingering Souls is a powerful card. Yeah. It, it was just a lot of fun. And the reason that was financially interesting was because that was the last time I remember something big happening in Magic before TCG Player kind of took over and exploded and became the place where everything went for Magic. Okay. Uh, so there was a lot of opportunity in that. 
because if you were testing with friends, if you were paying attention on message boards, because the source and salvation obviously exploded at the time with people playtesting this, it gave you a lot of opportunity to kind of get a leg up on what was going on, not just in the game, but also financially, because you had people talking about, oh, these are the decks I'm playtesting. These are doing really well. You know, you've got people that are playtesting at, you know, mana drains with like Reduke and everyone. And it was really cool because to me, that's kind of when speculation took off personally. Okay. Yeah. When I started to be like, all right, well, if this happens, what kind of cards stand to benefit from it? And that was the era where I really kind of wet my teeth with it before that first pro tour when the metagame kind of coalesced into what it would become. Mm -hmm. And there was just that opportunity and that newness to it that had so many people excited for it. And you had people that would like literally run in, hey, I need four breeding pools and two watery graves for this build I'm trying. And again, everything was liquid. But with it being an eternal format, it was incredibly interesting because that's when I remember foils exploding was when they announced modern and when modern started to take over and you started to see what is kind of for a long time was the economic norm in magic was foils were just insane. Yeah, they were a lot more valuable. They were not incredibly liquid, but they were certainly liquid. And you also had for the first time a big foreign market in foils and stuff like that. So if you were able to get some of those foreign foils affordably, you could potentially make a ton of money on them. And it was just a time when I remember a shit ton of opportunity existing, not just financially, but also in terms of gameplay, because nobody really knew. And it was the hybrid time between where we are now, where all of the information is available immediately right away, and the before times where your deck lists were checking InQuest and Scry. And that was it. Yeah. And it was just a really unique moment in Magic history that was both good financially for the game and good gameplay for the game. Uh, And, you know, it's kind of sad Modern was a necessity because personally, uh, I fucking loved Extended, which We'll talk about a bit later, yeah. Yeah. Uh, For me, looking at the Modern format, I I come at this a little bit later uh, when I'm looking at the format as to the version that I like the most. For reference, the era that you're talking about is basically around Q, I want to say two like late q2 of 2011 when you look at the yeah. um the ban restricted list modern sees its first bans in august mm-hmm. of 2011 when it becomes a sanctioned format and september it sees bannings from the pro tour that you referenced pro tour affiliate the first modern pro tour then we hit 2012 and there is <clears throat> one ban in modern some total uh Valica is banned in modern then in 2013, we see Bloodbraid Elf and a targeted Storm ban that is unnecessary in Seething Song, as ah. well as Second Sunrise, because that deck was rancid. That was bad. Yeah. Then in 2014, in February, Deathrite Shaman is banned. Yep. So about two and a half years after the era that you're talking about is where I come in. And for me, basically, right around Deathrite era... I'm oh, sorry, Deathrite Shaman banning is where I begin to enjoy modern because Deathrite Shaman wrought havoc on the diversity of the metagame. It really kind of turned it into this like Deathrite Shaman soup. And an example of what Deathrite Shaman did to the format was 
When you look at Burn, which is traditionally a mono red or Boros list, depending on the state of the format overall, Burn actually had to go Rakdos to play Deathrite Shaman for inevitability, eating their own cards out of their graveyard. And then also the card Bump in the Night, which is like Lightning Bolt on the front at sorcery speed, and then you could flash it back for eight or something like that. And with the banning of Deathrite Shaman that freed up deck design space it unlocked the format and we saw quickly the rise of birthing pod and splinter twin with St storm and various control shells jund and tron still carving away at the format and to kind of see what i mean i'm going to bring up real quick this is grand prix detroit uh, Sept uh yep september 15th yep the winner is josh mclean on birthing pod he beats reed duke who is on jund the third seed is ben moore on Jund. The fourth seat is Ben Stark. On Jund. The fifth seat is Adam Jansen. On Jund. The sixth seat is Alex Magelton on, on Affinity. Then in seventh and eighth, we have Marcelo Freeman and Willie Edel on The Rock. That is seven base, yeah, seven yeah. base Golgari decks in a top eight. And that is, again, September. Then we see the Deathrite Shaman banning. And we come back and we take a look at... Grand Prix Richmond, which was in March, so a month after the Death Rite Shaman ban. And Brian Liu wins with Birthing Pod, but after that we see Affinity. Affinity uh, Project Malira is another Birthing Pod list, but it's much more mid-range based. It yep. is... Um, it's a value deck rather than a combo list. Yes, it plays Siege Rhino. Then Ben Ben Friedman, same thing, the Siege Rhino list. Twin. Project Malira, Josh McLean again. I know he's on Siege Rhino. LSV on Siege Rhino. Twin, Twin, Affinity, Affinity, Scapeshift, Twin, Fairies. Even if we extend out the top eight list from Detroit, we're not going to see variation like that. Or numbers of non... Mm, I don't know what you want to call it. Golgari value-based decks. Yeah. We, but we do start to see the rise of, like I said, Twin and Affinity, these other decks in the format that kind of eventually peak up once... Deathrite Shaman is gone because it no like Wild Nakatl before it, every green deck started with this card, or every black deck started with this card and it yep. just ran the format. It was just too good. So I consider the post Deathrite Shaman era to be when modern truly becomes a format with its own unique identity and focus. Like yeah. I agree with everything you said about like the format is announced, you have no idea what's going on, you just test, you watch that Pro Tour. You're like, what the hell is this? And it's just a great time, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I also agree with you from a financial standpoint where that was the time to get in because very shortly thereafter, once Modern widens in scope, it still coalesced around a smaller number of decks. And prior to the first Modern Master set, the barrier to entry for the overwhelming majority of the format was just extremely high. And the best way to get into it was to have been playing when the cards in the best decks were in standard. Yeah. Everything took a rocket a few years before Deathrite Shaman banning, which is exactly the area you're talking about, and there was nothing to be had on the cheap. That's yep. it. From top to bottom, it was just a super expensive format. We're talking about an, the era of, like, $100 Zen fetches. We're talking about, like, even the Tron list, everything that Wormcoil Engine is, like, a $50 or $60 card. Karn Liberated is close to $100. This yep. is... Uh, Ugin is going to hit in about a year and basically become another $60 to $80 card in Tron. Blink or Ink Moth Nexus in the Infect deck is going to cost closer to $40 or $50. Noble Hierarchs are going to jump up from $20 to $40. And this just becomes a very expensive format overall. 
and it really is just time and what's the right word here not attendance but interest in the format drives finances sky high for this format and so financially speaking exactly what you said for modern the best time for finances was right at the beginning because everything was super cheap if you wanted to get in now also a good era but it's taken so much work by watsi to get there so many master sets so many reprints to actually make this format financially accessible to people yeah like i i couldn't agree more with what you said because by the time i'm interested in this format and play testing and actually going to events everything is just wholly inaccessible well it, and it sucks because modern was created as like here's the accessible eternal format yeah. for people well, that was great until you had to make a new non-rotating eternal format because modern got too expensive, which meant legacy was just outlandish. Yep. Thanks, Pioneer. Yeah. And so now we're going to backtrack a little bit. And we're going to we're going to split here and talk about different formats. I'm going to look at extended, which is a fantastic format for people who know about it and for those that don't, it was a non-rotating format or sorry. It was a barely rotating format. Uh, where Watsi seems to rotate it whenever they felt like. The more you dig in on this, it usually happened every one to two years, and I'll, I'll mention that a little bit here. But yeah. when I started, I started after the second rotation and before the third rotation of the set. So the second rotation was in October of 2002 and yep. lasted for three years until 2000, uh, October 2005. So this is three years. Sometimes we saw a one-year rotation because Watsi felt like whatever. Yep. Uh, this third rotation was what players call to like uh, refer to as the moto alignment, whereby the last of the sets not implemented on moto rotated out of the format. So it became an um, IPA block forward compared to what it had been before, which was when I started playing Tempest block forward. Now, this is a wide berth for a format, but Extended was unlike any other format we have ever had. It was so good. It was a rotational format based on a, quote, legacy, unquote, card pool. So this allowed for the format to see change and evolution every two or three years, rotating out the oldest blocks, effectively starting the format anew. But in between those rotations, it was a brewer's paradise because you kept adding standard sets on. So when I started in 2002... That was basically IPA block. So I yeah. had temp oh no, sorry, onslaught. So I had Tempest to Onslaught. Then Mirrodin block came in, it was Tempest to Mirrodin. Then original Kamagawa, and it was Tempest to Kamagawa. And like right after Kamagawa, rotation. So I had all those yep. blocks come in that allowed me to just brew and play. It was great. Anything could do well at any given event. Decks constantly came out of nowhere to take the format by storm, and it was never short on ingenuity. Because of this, though, the format didn't need a ton of policing by Watsi and saw three ban announcements in this entire period, totaling 11 cards. The format would then go on to see five more ban announcements total before retirement, two of which I think are pretty obvious. One of them was the Affinity Ban, and the other was Sensei's Divining Top. Card was bad. Absolutely. The other odds and ends were, like I said, Stoneforge Mystic, Jace the Mind Sculptor, and basically anything uh, from Standard that was just too powerful, they started clipping. Um, I think uh, Thopter Sword combo was clipped, and maybe Dark Depths eventually was clipped out of uh, Extended. Now, I don't think I played the same Extended deck for more than a month because I was a filthy net decker and would build something I liked from the most recent GP Top 8, which was, again, always in flux. 
and this was a fluid and cheap era in the format that would eventually become the cornerstone of legacy for years to come and an example of what i'm talking about when i talk about deck variation is this is the grand prix seattle 2005 top eight this happened on march 6th of 2005 and we see rock which is just black green mid-range gushatog cephalid life which is cephalid breakfast that people are playing legacy this is the original version goblins Alurin, another goblin deck macy rock which i believe is another green black soup deck and then sneaky go which is hilarious um it is <laughs> i forgot about that deck. <laughs> yeah it's blazing ritual and sneak attack now a month prior to this in february we see a top eight with Alurin, cephalid breakfast the temporary solution which is another twist on is this another twist on rock no, this is uh, Jeskai Control. Sorry. Yeah, it's from the solution. Back yeah, yeah, yeah. In the day. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Alurin, Cephalid Breakfast, Jeskai, Welder Reanimator, which is an artifact reanimation deck, High Tide, two life decks, which you've never seen again, and then Blue Green Madness. This format, a month apart, is all over the place. So, when I say this is a wide format and everything changes, we had a Grand Prix in Boston on Fe- in February and then on the opposite side of the US a month later and the format looked so incredibly different at that event it yep. is wild F- financially extended wasn't a terribly expensive format on the whole the scarcity of cards combined with few online vendors at the time provided the largest hurdle like card Hoss was the place to do it star city was just up and coming tcg player was not a thing yet i think there were still maybe even brain burst then um, there was, I think so. Yeah. Modal was like the other place, magic online traders league, which wow. we mentioned, which we mentioned every now and again, we bring that up. Um, but from this mem- was so good. Yeah. From memory though, the most expensive cards were those that were still in standard as they had demand from multiple sources. And a, for instance, here is when I was building Demir reanimator and this is Intomb, Exume, reanimate vampiric tutor, Chrome Mox. I didn't spend as much per card on show and tell reanimates and tombs or even vampiric tutor as i did on the set of rorik's blade wing or a chroma angel of wrath (laughs) those were the cards i was reanimating and every one of those cards individually cost more than a show and tell or reanimate an entomb or a vampiric tutor that is insane i the thing about extended and you talk about how wide open the metagame is is and how rare the band announcements were and the reason i love the format is that by design, it allowed for design mistakes in Magic to figure themselves the fuck out. Yeah. Like, it, it was so open because there were infinite archetypes, and a lot of those made their way into Legacy later. And it's funny oh. you mention, like, Aloran and all these others. Yeah. I mean, think about how many of those decks are now powerhouses in EDH. Mm-hmm. You know, in in many ways, I think Extended as it existed was probably the single most influential format on all of Magic in terms of prices and in terms of, like, design. Uh, I I love the format. I encourage everyone to look into it as much as possible. So many rule changes came out of Extended. Mind's Desire has to be shortcutted now because of it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, it was was awesome. And like you said, your ability to get those decks, like... It was affordable. You could get a tier one deck. And sure, there's the argument of, oh, well, I have to buy a new deck every month because the format's so open. No, you don't. don't. It, you don't have to. No. Not at all. I was playing 
I played Alluren for a really long time, and I played Goblins for a really long time. And those were for funsies. They lasted me for years, basically until they rotated. I'm trying to I'm trying to find now when they banned Affinity in Modern, because there was an Inquest article. Not Modern, sorry, Extended. Because there is an Inquest article from the time in Extended that compared the fastest decks in the format. And I remember this because it has Mirror Enforcer on a bike, just hand-drawn. Yep. And it's which one of these is faster? Goblins, Full Power Affinity, I believe, or Blue Green Manus. And Goblins won. And it March was... 2005 was the extended ban for Affinity. Okay, yeah, which is huge. Yeah. So Affinity did not see a ban for a fairly long time in Modern. Yeah. Commander saw a ban? Commander had just started in 2005. Yep. Woohoo. And you were able to, to, to your point, you were able to beat that design mistake with yep. decks that existed in Extended as they existed almost in Standard, but Goblins got like Wasteland. It didn't really play Port a lot. Blue-Green yeah. Madness was still the same deck, and those were the fastest decks. They were all vying for that slot. They were all fairly competitive. You didn't just get blown out playing against the Affinity player. Yeah. It gave the it gave the ability for people to actually continue playing their cards even after they were banned in standard, and not feel like they were just overpowering a bunch of people in a different yeah. format. It was great, and it's convenient that I, as we talked about uh, before we started recording, that I picked this era and extended, and I mentioned it in here. A lot of what you see here in this era of extended became a pillar of legacy. The goblins list is almost the exact same. Yep. The Alluren list is almost the exact same. Although, uh, prior to AFR release, AFR brought us Archerix, the Lich, however you want to pronounce that. Yeah. Which changed the uh, the, the list. And it brought us uh, Reanimator. It brought us Cephalid Breakfast, which is just coming back around. Though now it's not yep. reanimating Suture Ghoul. We're winning with Thassa's Oracle, but the idea is still the same. It's still the same core engine. Red yep. deck wins very similar to what was going on here the i want to say the storm deck the high tide deck the high tide deck and extended became yeah the high tide deck in legacy countertop kind of put an end to that one but there's a lot of this parallel that we see in this era of the format that takes where or rather it builds the foundation of legacy for the era you're going to talk about i believe and then moving yeah. on into the future past that yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting to see that coming now from the point where we're, you know, a few years removed and we kind of get, OK, how extended influence things, because at the time it was just fun. Yeah, like it was just gas to play that. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of opportunity. And like you said, it laid the foundation for what I consider, I guess, really just the reformation of legacy if you want to call it that um it it was so way back in the day we had type one and type 1.5 uh well for a very long time those formats were intertwined and the ban list was simple legacy had cards that were banned uh and they were mostly the cards that were banned in vintage restricted and, or sorry, yeah, everything banned restricted, restricted. in vintages, banned or restricted. Then in yeah. 2004, Legacy kind of became its own thing. Yeah, uh, they basically said, "Hey guys, uh, we're just gonna 
make a whole new ban list for this format and make it fun again. And for a few years, Legacy was great. And I distinctly remember it's in 2008 Legacy. Uh, it was both a good format gameplay-wise and it was a good format financially. So at the time, one of the most expensive cards in the format, there were two, Tarmogoyf, which sounds insane to a lot of you, I'm sure, and Intuition. Those were two of the most expensive cards in the format. Uh, I played Dreadstill, yep. which was a standstill variant that used the interaction of Stifle and Phyrexian Dreadnought to just nuke a 12-12 out there and start bashing face. Um, it was really nice because similar to RTR, similar to the Cons era standards, similar to Extended, there were a ton of viable archetypes. You had mm -hmm. Ava Green, which was the suicide blacklist that splashed green for Tarmogoyf, named after the James Bond character. Uh, you had Quasi-Spanish Inquisition, yep. which was eight bargains, so like Cruel and Infernal Bargain and Land Grants. Uh, and this was before like Top and, well, this was right when about Top and Counterbalance started to take things over. Uh, people were playing mono white stacks. Threshold was still Canadian Threshold. Canadian Thresh. With Werebear and Tarmogoyf as your threats and maybe a Nimble Mongoose and Tombstalker. Uh, we didn't have lands in the way that we do now, but there were control discs in place and there was a ton of Stoneforge. But it was a time where Legacy basically cost the same as at that time modern. You could get a deck for less than $1,000, and it would have, like, six to eight fetch lands. I remember at the time, Force of Will was 50 to $75, and now I still think it's at a healthy price of around 100 Uh But it was just a really cool time because, yet again, you had all of these archetypes that basically suppressed the prices of all but a few cards, and that was your dual lands, which, yeah. of course... What's the standard anytime you get into a new format? Everyone tells you, make the mana base, yep. get the lands. So you started to see that kind of become the thing, but it was a time where I remember you'd go into a store and there'd be duels everywhere and they'd be affordable. Mm -hmm. And this was also right around the time that EDH started to kind of become a thing. So you didn't have the price spike there yet. But you had all these viable decks and all these financially viable and liquid cards in Legacy. Now, the one exception, obviously, was at this time we were before a reprint of the Onslaught fetches. So right. they were like 100 to $150. But we had the Zendikar fetches. So guess what everyone ran instead? Yeah, the Zendikar, the Zendikar fetches. Uh, and it made it just a lot more approachable for people. And it was just a really good time for the format. And you started to see what we see now is the financial norm and that reserveless cards kind of became the driver. Mm. Tarmogoy, Force of Will, those kind of things obviously mattered, but intuition was intuition. Yeah. And you were going to have to pay for intuition because it wasn't getting reprinted. Duels were duels. You were going to have to pay for them because they were used in everything and they weren't getting reprinted. So this is kind of a jumping point where while things are good at this time, it's right before things get financially bad. Uh, where people start to be hardcore priced out of formats, where they just can't be involved with it at all as much as they may want to. Mm -hmm. And you start to see Magic become more of this luxury collectible rather than something that was just practical in our lives because we were in our 20s and didn't care. Uh, and that was, you know, that, that was to me the last time I remember all of Magic 
being financially approachable for everyone. Yeah. Because, you know, Lotuses at the time weren't tens of thousands, you know, they were like one to two, which was a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. You know, you could get them, you know, two to five realistically for good ones, but it was a lot more approachable. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was something that you could realistically obtain if you grinded enough. And it was just a really good time to play magic. And that's, you know, for me, the one thing I can always say about a format that's good financially and good for gameplay is you need multiple viable archetypes. And I don't mean three. I mean like six plus. It can't be your rock, paper, scissors format. Yep. There has to be a lot of variety there. And when you look at the formats that we have now that people are playing and they're like, oh, this is stale. I don't want to do it. Modern has a few viable archetypes. Legacy was dog water for the longest time until they banned DI. It's shaken out a little bit differently. And obviously your mono white initiative needed to go too, but more on that later. But everything was viable. It's just a good time for everybody. As a vendor, I can buy whatever I want. I'm going to sell it. As a player, I can play whatever I want. It's viable. So the reason we dovetailed this was because, like I said, the foundation of exte- of this extended era was legacy. Yeah. Or rather, other way around. Um, foundation of this legacy format this was, extended. was the extended prior. Yeah. And but that's when you started to see that one bleed. Of, one of the other things that I want to touch on that might actually be very important to a lot of what you're saying is with that second rotation that I mentioned that removed Ice Age to Tempest, they also ungrandfathered the duels from extended. And now people that were playing a lot of those decks have nowhere else to go besides Legacy. So you see a lot of the same thing happen with players moving from Standard to Extended Mm -hmm. that you you see going from Extended to Legacy, where they just port their decks over because they own the cards. Also, at that point in time, you said duels are very approachable. People can be divesting at that point in time, too, from their duels that they had for Extended when they are gone because they don't play a legacy there's not a legacy scene they don't know about legacy what have you so there's this really interesting kind of like place in time for both extended and legacy right here and they seem to me like they play very well together they're very much in concert yeah and i want to give our listeners an example of what's going on in legacy at this point in time in 2007 there is one legacy Sorry, there are two legacy updates from the banner restricted list. In June of 2007, Flash is banned. Mind... My favorite ban because it came into effect on day two of an event. Yep. Mind over matter and replenisher unbanned. Cool. In September, Shaharazad is banned in both legacy and vintage because of shenanigans in Europe about a a storm deck in game one that sideboarded into quad fork quad Shaharazad in game two. <laughs> they just hard cut that, okay? So that's what happens in Legacy in 2007. In 2008, we see one one banning, and this is the only change to the format. And I want you to know this. Legacy, in September 2008, Time Vault is banned. That's what's going on. We move into 2009. There's... W- one item here in September of 2009. Dream Halls, Entomb, and Metalworker are all unbanned. Entomb, too powerful for the format. Time yeah. Vault, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on in this format? It is insane. It's so good. <laughs> so to, that just to, to give people a little bit of perspective of what's going on in Legacy. 
everything's going on in Legacy. Sheer madness is going on yeah. in Legacy. We're all mad that deck was here. really good in Legacy for a while after it ported out of Extended. Yeah, uh, and I'm not speaking about I like. For, for that, this is just an era of legacy I'm not familiar with. I assume the majority of our listeners aren't either, and that should give people a good idea of what yep. was going on in legacy at the time, which is just whatever. Yeah. Okay. Anything else before I move into picks? Nope, let's do it. You start us off. Yes, I am. So this week, I'm going to be making a pick ahead of Commander... What is it? Masters? Remasters? Yes, Commander, Commander Masters. In yeah. Halkite Courser. And this is a card that I just kind of threw on my list, and I was like, oh yeah, I actually play this card. I should have thought about this one. And uh, as of taking my notes last week, Card Kingdom was buying 24 at 280. There were 183 at 490 on TCG Player. And when I finished my notes, Card Kingdom was buying 24 at 280 still, thankfully. And the same number existed on TCG Player. So. We're not seeing a, a whole lot of movement over the weekend, which is perfectly fine because we got Commander Legends and then screaming in Lord of the Rings spoilers, which is perfect. This is what I want. I want people to forget about this card for a little bit. So when we look at Hellkite Courser, uh, for those that don't know, because this is only in Commander Legends, I'll bring up the stocks graph so we can see this at the same time. This is a 6-5 dragon for 4 and double red. It has flying, and when it enters the battlefield, it says, when it ETBs, you may put a commander you own from the command zone onto the battlefield. It gains haste. Return it to the command zone at the beginning of the next end step. So important here is a commander. So if you have partners, you only get one. The commander does gain haste and then you place it back in the command zone. It does not incur the commander tag. This is just a free cast. So, and the format on the whole, I mean, what's the playability of this? Honestly, pretty high. This is playable in any deck involving red and a commander that costs an obnoxious amount of mana. There's a lot of them. There's a lot, yes. It could just die four times and still cost an obnoxious amount of mana. Exactly. When we look at the format on the whole, we find this in the 99 of primarily dragons and chonky red decks, which is exactly what we expect, but also in Obeka. And my assumption is that this is just to start the chain because it, you, Obeka might have died. Obeka only costs four. But if, yeah. if you summon it in with Corsair, it gets haste, you end the turn, cool. It's Obeka for six, which you're going to pay anyway, but now you avoid the eight for another round, right? I guess. Um, I don't play this in a, in Cedrus that has Obeka, but eh, so hard to say. Yeah. yeah. All this to note, we are picking this ahead of the Ur-Dragon reprint. That is why I just slammed this on my list and I want to talk about this. We got the Ur-Dragon spoiled. Not a lot happened with this card. When we were looking at the stocks graph, there's a little bit of a bump, but we want to get in now before more people remember, hey, this is coming. Now... Looking primarily at the monocolored up to tricolored dragon commanders, we see a lot of the same line. Cast Courser, attack with commander, pass, cast commander the next turn. As oddly, a lot of these dragon commanders cost seven while while Courser costs six. So you get to you know, just slam your commander twice. It's yep. a neat little line of play where you get to kind of quote-unquote combo ETB triggers, combat steps, etc. just by playing the game, which is a really agnostic, straightforward, and approachable plan overall. Uh, where I play this is actually in Karthus, Tyrant of, uh, Tyrant of Jund, so I can do exactly what I said. On 6, cast Corsair, cast Karthus, everything gets haste, 
mush you. Next turn, just cast Karthus. Everything gets haste. Mush you again. And it is choice. Yep. Outside of dragons and things like Akroma, Angel of Fury, we see Corsair as an enabler to commanders with a splashy ETB or ability that you want to reuse as often as possible, triggering your commander without incurring the commander tax. That's huge. So we look at Atali, Ilharg the Razebor, Lord Xander. Ilharg. You know, that's where we see this. We want to re-trigger that ability as many times as possible without incurring the commander cost. And there's also a small combo element with Obeka and uh, another one with Graven, where you can set up either to start your combo with Obeka and then end the turn, or with uh, Graven hitting Corsair off of something like Bull's Citadel is really nice because you get to spend the six life on Corsair, cast Graven for free, saves a little bit of mana, and now you're punching somebody for what's Graven's power plus whatever plus six. Yeah. Graven. Five. So you're just punching somebody for half their commander damage by hitting this off of Bull's Citadel. There's a lot of options here, and they're all pretty palatable no matter how you look at it. When we take a look at the timeline, things are a little fuzzy, but we're looking mainly at the Commander Legends weeks, which is release, which is like five months out from now, and that's when we can expect to be able to get out of this at a profit. We are reliant on when people can have it sorry can have in hand their copies of the ur dragon that's really important to us that's the yeah. hype we're going for now this has been selling reliably about five copies a day for the last four months which is great to see for a card that hasn't received any additional support from a commander recently this means though that will hit the end of supply within the next two months months which could be a wrinkle this could also accelerate if we get any good support in the Lord of the Rings set, which drops two months prior to Commander Legends. So this points to, as I said, a bit of a fuzzy timeline. I think buying in over the next few weeks to a month is safe and profit can be expected as early as two months out if supply does truly bottom out, but otherwise we're looking at five months. The one interesting thing I did find, though, is that the CK Bylus is extremely fragile when looking at this card. Between writing down my outline and finishing my notes, the CK Bylus, which, as I mentioned before, is locked at uh, 280, yep. is now down to actually 250 today. But, and that's flat like 42-ish percent of their market price, that tanked actually down to about $2, which was 33% of the retail. So it is not pegged to anything. It's just wildly fluctuating depending on how Car Kingdom feels about it. So yeah. until there's a run on them from the open market, I don't uh, them being Card Kingdom, I don't believe that Biolist is our out for this. I truly believe this is a trade binder card or a um, an open market kind of card. I might be proved wrong later on, and this does stabilize on CK, but right now, based on what I was seeing over a small span and then tonight, I really don't think Biolist is our out. Reprint Equity is a, another interesting wrinkle. I wouldn't be surprised to see this in Commander Legends to do that... Uh, in a limited environment is kind of not the greatest, but I suspect it's really the only place to do it reliably uh, outside yeah. of a commander deck. But that also means we need to lean in to the tribal aspect here because they're not just going to give you Corsair or Ur Dragon and then a bunch of like other large red generals and no dragon support. They got to lean in. So it's like questionable about what we're going to get in the rest of that set. If we don't get a reprint, then I don't think we're going to see this anywhere else for a while. Last week, 
we talked about the upcoming sets in regards to the Herald of War spec and how there are no angels upcoming. There are similarly, I believe, no dinosaurs slated. Sorry, not dinosaurs. There are no dragons slated for anything upcoming. It's dinosaurs. So yep. I like this in that regard. And like I said, we're just kind of holding our breath on Commander Legends. But if it does hit a reprint, I don't think it's going to do too much to us. By quantity, I, th- I have my two copies for play, but I definitely pick up another like full play set to trade out over time to players on the Dragon Plan, as well as players who realize this isn't tied to Dragons. Um, so if you wanted to go as deep as about a dozen, I think that's a perfectly fine number, but it might take a bit to churn through after the initial Dragon hype from the oh, Ur-Dragon yeah. fizzles a bit. Like I said, it seems like people think this card says like your put your dragon commander into play and that is not the case and so once people figure out it isn't then it is a lot more palatable to to move at larger quantities later on yeah i like this card a lot um being being able to get a free commander cast regardless of whether it impacts the commander attacks or not which obviously it doesn't as a huge upside but Being able to get that without commander, without the tax, is huge, uh, because this is the kind of thing that, while six mana is a lot for competitive games, it's still pretty solid. Because yeah. I can just drop this for six mana, and if my win con is my commander, well, I've just got it for free, or it's an extra cast on the same turn. You know, it it makes it really good, and it hits that nice battle cruiser speed too where you get your really casual and there is a little bit of upside yeah uh not a ton but there is some there and i think that's just really good uh for the card i also think that being from commander legends which at the time wasn't really a sought after set uh similar to you know Baldur's gate commander legends like you had your cards that were chase cards that you wanted to hit but this wasn't one of those cards this is one of those cards that just kind of got forgotten about and has just been sitting there steadily gaining. So I think it's a big opportunity to potentially do really well there. The other thing that's very interesting about this card is that the foil market price has now dipped below the non-foil price, which is very interesting to me, and that's something that you're seeing more and more with cards from Uh, these Legends, Masters, whatever sets. uh, I don't don't have it next to me anymore, but I do have a... um a foil from that set that you can still find unsleeved in a one row just oh, by yeah. looking top down because they were atrociously bad foils. Yep. They just curled super hard. Uh, and to mirror that the card kingdom buy price tonight for Hellkite Courser is 250. The foil is 280. So they are also floating in concert on the buy yeah. list uh, of CK. All right. Mine is a little bit different. Uh, we, you know, I mentioned more on that later uh, when I talked about White Plume Adventure, and that's my pick. Yes. So this one's kind of interesting, and basically the reason I'm picking this is because I look at it as an analog to Deathrite Shaman. So if you look at Deathrite Shaman, you see, you know, January 14 when the ban happens, the card goes from ten dollars to like six on low, and then you go to where the Legacy ban is, and yet again, it tanks. Uh, the market, let's see, it's early July. We're looking at about a $5 market, and then it goes down to $2. Yep. Well, guess what the market on White Plume Adventure is right now? $2. Now, Deathrite, as you may know, has done a decent job of recovering. It's generally in that 5 to $7 range, which is a decent double-up. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when Deathrite got banned in Legacy, I bought all of them that I could for a dollar. When Mox Opal got banned from Modern, I bought all of them that I could for $25. Because these are cards that clearly have play in EDH. You know what White Plume Adventurer has? Clearly play in EDH. It's from a fucking commander set. Of course it's going to see play there. Uh, now, in terms of quantity timeline, obviously you're looking for an EDH set. So you want some multiple of one. I'd be comfortable with about 10 because it's 20 yeah. bucks. That's like another 100 Sarkins on ceilings or 10 White Plume Adventures, which is probably going to pay for more than 100 Sarkins on ceilings yeah, the... when that pans out and Sarkins on ceiling doesn't. But uh, this is also worth noting that this is relatively plain specific. So unless we go back to Dungeons and Dragons, which I hope to God we're not that out of ideas right now, but we probably are, I don't see this being something that we'll necessarily see again. Now, this is something we could see in a similar vein to, you know, the Universes Beyond stuff, where it's here's a version of this card or whatever. That's fine. Uh, This card is good. It gives you everything you want in white. It lets you end the game. It lets you draw cards. It ramps. It makes your stuff beefier. And it's Seedborn Muse in white. Like, I understand most people, when they think about this card, think of the top half of the text. Mm -hmm. When it enters the battlefield, you take the initiative. The thing that really makes this shine in EDH is at the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, untap a creature you control. If you've completed a dungeon, untap all creatures you control instead. So this being in a color where it's easily abusable with blink effects or reanimation or anything like that makes it much easier to stomp through the dungeon as quickly as possible uh, and gives you a huge advantage that you normally don't get in white. This does a lot of things that the color doesn't otherwise have access to, and I know that that was kind of the theme for Battle for Baldur's Gate. You had Deep Known Terramancer, you had uh, the Archivist of Agma, and you have White Plume Adventure. All of them do things that you don't necessarily think of when you think white. Mm-hmm. But White Plume is the one that has a price point that's palatable to get into in volume. Now, in terms of timeline... That one's a little bit tricky. Yeah. So if you take a look at the stocks graph for Deathrite again, you can see where the banning hit. It tanks, and it takes a little bit of time to get back there. Now, the interesting thing about this is that if you look especially at the modern banning, EDH was in its infancy. didn't really exist that much. If you take a look at when the legacy banning happened, which was July 2nd, 2018, you see that shortly thereafter... That price corrects in like a year to be almost twice what it was after the banning. So I don't think we're looking too long on this. I think it could be shorter than 12 months even uh, because obviously there's some D&D tie-ins. Stuff's yeah. going a little bit different for them. You've got Baldur's Gate 3 releasing in August. There's a lot of things that could get looks to this card just from the general awareness of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, but worst case scenario, you're looking at 10 to 12 months to double your money, which is, again, well above what you're going to get out of the S&P, well above what you're going to get out of any sort of stock, or sorry, any sort of like certificate of deposit. It's just a good, I think, pick up 10 to 20 for a low amount, put them in a box, forget about them, maybe take a couple in your trade binder just to even some things out, because they are at a price point where that's kind of palatable. It's also something that should be pretty easy to pick up from legacy players now, because guess what? They can't play anymore. 
one of the most affordable decks in the format. So we got to go back to Death and Taxes, which I hate. But I think it's a really good look, and it's something that, much like your pick, hits the competitive side as well as the casual side. It, it does the whole gamut of people that play EDH, and that just makes it really fun to me. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> I think it's going to take some time before people want to actually figure out how to best play the dungeon stuff. Yeah. And obviously the initiative and the rest of that suite play well together. And I think one of the things that might be holding this back is the initiative is spread across. Is it all five colors or is it just Abzan? Oh no, it's Uh, Abzan plus red at least. I don't know if there's a blue initiative. It did have blue because it got banned in Pauper. Okay. Um, so, So it is everywhere. Yeah. So it's just like, what is the best option for this deck? Is it five color dungeons is it something like that and i don't think there's a great general in front of this yet a great commander in front of this so i think it's just a value add to a deck right now yeah which speaking about financial opportunity is great because if we ever get a dungeon commander probably pretty good yeah exactly so it's like that's kind of forward think too it's just is just about how this mechanic was created the dungeon i'm not even talking about initiative here the dungeon And then just not really supported from the the bottom up in yeah. regards to Commander. It just seems to kind of have been left by the side. So you've got to look at cards that just provide additional value. And it's White Plume Adventure does that really well compared to almost all the other initiative cards. I think yeah. the green one's pretty decent. The green one on taps, right? I um, don't know what the rare one does. I only oh, know the what one. the common one does. Oh, I think about the rare one. Under, yeah, the, the rare one, I think it's on tap, yeah. Yeah, Under Mountain, whatever it is. Um, yeah. I should know this off the top of my head. Under Mountain Adventurer. When it ETBs, take the initiative. Oh, no, it doesn't untap. Okay. If you, oh, But if you've completed a dungeon, you add six green mana to your pool instead of two. So, again, another, another card that actually works well with completing a dungeon. That plays well with the rest of this kind of suite yeah. of cards. So I like these uh, for a look overall. I agree. I think White Plume Adventure is the best one to look at right now because it is just a great value add in Commander. The initiative is not as impactful on your life total as the Monarchy is. The yep. Monarchy gets you killed the because that's how you got to take it. Yep. And the initiative does not. It just triggers in your upkeep and you do your thing. And so for a card like this right now in Commander, I really like the look overall. There's the opportunity that there's a little bit, a smidge of pressure put on this from Vintage, which is seeing white initiative. still sees play there, yep. Yep. So you still have, like, albeit this kind of mothballed format that is yeah. that could be putting a little bit of pressure on this. And now that it's back down at a much more reasonable price it is going to be a lot easier to move as it gains in time. So you, if you come in at somewhere between, let's say, 2 and 4, when this moves up to you know 6 or 7, that's a lot more palatable than the immediate spike to $10 that it was. People can kind of see this as a savings and move in from your binder, and it becomes this yeah. really affordable option. What is the? And right now we're probably getting close to, if not already, at peak supply because of that ban, yep. I would think. And so now would be the correct time to to move in on this. You know, it's something you talk about a lot. You like looking at cards that are banned or unbanned as targets. Yeah. And not all of them are are good looks, but this yeah. is not, not all of them pan out. 
but yeah so you got to be kind of you got to figure things out and i think with this pick in particular you've definitely done that i think this is definitely one that has the opportunity to pan out yeah so i like it right. anything else before we cut out uh i think it's dog shit that wasteland is legal and modern that's about it it's not legal and modern until Lord of the Rings. No, it's not. The box topper stuff doesn't change. I thought Blake I, said. Did he say it did? I thought it was in the set, not just a box topper. If it's in the set, then yeah, absolutely. But at the end of the day, like I'll put it in goblins all day long. But if it's not, <clears throat> I, I don't think it's in the set. I do, I do not believe the box toppers change legality. I think that's what Blake said before he revealed Wasteland. Okay. Double check me on that, but get at me in the comments. So. Yeah, please. Uh. But otherwise, I mean, is Field of Ruin that much, that far off? Yes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> for at NTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube, I am at Halt I Reptar. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you next week.